two things I wanted to mention before we hop into the scripture here. And, and that's, first of all, yesterday we had the journey to the cross here. And some of you were here for that, I, I know, and some of you missed it. And I'm sorry for that. It was a special moment. That this place was set up with different stations where you can kind of walk through and experience uh, different reminders about Christ in, during Holy Week. And it's kind of a family thing, uh, but it wasn't, uh, there was adults who came through without kids, and it was uh, deeply meaningful for them as well. I know one of the things that happened for me that was pretty special is as I was walking through, um, I was explaining to the boys different parts of it. And I'd get halfway through trying to explain to them something about what Christ did for us, and I'd just lose it, you know, <laughs> because I, uh, 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 just the, the teachable moments all of a sudden, the truth about what Christ did, it does when it's being translated into the mind of a child and the simplicity of what it is that Christ actually did, it's, it's amazing, you know. And uh, sometimes we, it's, it's easy to miss the moment. And I would urge you during this Holy Week not to, um, but to grab a hold of what it is that Christ did. Holton got a splinter when he was touching the cross. Talk about a learning moment. It was great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, secondly, is Josh was telling you about the business meeting that happened on Sunday. And I just personally want to say uh, thank you for those of you who were here and a part of that and were, uh, were um, a part of the whole process so far. We look forward to seeing what it is that, that God has. I, I know that for all of us, there's some questions around what we're doing moving forward. And I wanted to relay a conversation that I had with someone. And uh, the conversation was someone from our second service, a newer family, um, in the last, they come in the last year and a half, I would say. They said, uh, you know, we're a little concerned about the building project because, like, if we build a bigger building, there's more, there's, it means that we're probably going to have more people coming. And they're like, that's good, but, one of the things that we loved when we first came to Parker Court Church is that it was kind of this family atmosphere, you know, where we were known and we all knew each other. And I said, what, what's going to happen with that? I mean, are we going to lose who we are? And uh, I said, I, I feel your pain. I, I know what you're saying. Um, and I remember uh, a, a conversation we had last June. We had a worship Sunday, and we talked about the deep and wide church. And... Uh, this is what I know about when it comes to God calling us both to a mission, to spread the gospel, and to bring new people to discipleship in Him, and also the call to be a family built together, closely knit as the people of God. This is what I know about it, is that if you look through the Scripture, this is where we went. I said, if you, if you think about it, turn where you can think of in the Scriptures that describe the most intimate church that you can think of the most close-knit family church that you can picture. It's Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2, this is just a family moment that I felt like needed to happen, <laughs> by the way. In Acts chapter 2, this is what we read, verses 42 to 47. You know it well. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. Now listen, starting in verse 44. 
All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. That's a pretty special church, isn't it? Sharing everything they had, meeting together. And then I said, now I also want us to think about when the church was most explosive in the scriptures in its growth and its spread of the gospel and turn to the passage that would show us that. And if you look at those verses we were just looking at, you look at the next verse and it says, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And in verse 41, which is right before the whole thing, it says, those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000. I don't know how in the world they had a church that had started with 3,000 people and the Lord kept adding to their number daily those who were being saved. And yet they had that level of interaction and intimacy and family atmosphere. It's pretty amazing. Now, I don't know where God's taking us as a church as far as how many people he's going to add to our church. But what I do know is that he calls us to two things. He calls us to be disciple makers, to help invite others into the gospel, into relationship with Jesus Christ, to host them in the family and to bring them in as a part of the family. And on the other hand, he calls us to not be a corporation or a business. He calls us to be a loving family who deeply cares for one another. And when it came to this person who I was interacting with, I, I just shared with him this thought. I said, you know, there's one thing I know that's radically different about that church and the, and the average church in America. And the difference is that it says that every night they met together in each other's homes. Every night they met together in each other's homes. And I said, if we just have a Sunday morning space, then we pretty much have to decide whether we're going to make disciples with the Sunday morning space or whether we're going to act like we're a family with the Sunday morning space. But if we have all week long to interact with each other, then God has the room to do both. And so the real question is, is if we want to be able to engage in the deep intimacy that church provides in our lives, but we also want to be obedient to the mission that God has called us to, to win disciples for Him, there's only one way that the math adds up. And it's if Jesus has more space in our lives to work it out. And as a church, I believe that the only way to move forward in the kingdom of God in a way that honors God is to be a family, close-knit family, who people know each other, care for each other, love one another, and at the same time are relentless in making disciples for Christ because we know that it matters for all of eternity. And if we're going to have God do both of those things in us, then we have to say, whatever it takes, God. Transformation and revival, God establishing His church the way He wants to, can't happen on a Sunday morning. It happens when we give our lives to Him. And everything we do becomes church. Now I'm preaching to the choir, I know it. I've seen a bunch of you give your lives in deep dedication to the church. But as we move forward, as we move forward, if we see God grow our church wider because we're seeing more disciples growing and becoming committed at this place, if we don't want to lose the DNA 
of who Parker Ford Church is. And it's going to require a great deal from us. But it will be well, well. Give our lives to Him. Okay. That's the family moment. And uh, we have our scripture for today, Palm Sunday. We're going to be in Mark chapter 11. And I'm going to start in verse 7. And uh, we're going to honor God's word by standing as we read it together. When they brought the colt to Jesus, they threw their cloaks over it. He sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread the branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. His disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow for anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city, and in the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from its roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith. In God, he sent. Blessed be God's word. Have a seat. Join me in prayer. God, we have just a few minutes of remaining in this service, and we would love to hear from you. We'd love to understand more about what happened on this day. We'd love to be able to walk away from this morning having our minds perked a little more, having our spirits touched a little more, having our reality shaped a little more with the truth of who you are. We ask that we would be able to look with unveiled faces at your glory and it would transform us from glory unto glory. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Have you ever been in a place where you can't really hear someone? And I don't mean physically hear them because the microphone's doing weird things. I, I mean, where, like, you just can't hear from that person right now, you know? And it may be that it's a, a voice you've heard too much, a voice you're frustrated with, and you can't really hear from them. Or it might just be that they're kind of categorically dismissed. You know, maybe it's the other political party who you, you, you kind of are connected to one political party and the other political party. You can't really hear a voice from that side without being frustrated with them. Or maybe it's whatever, 
But have you ever been in a situation where you can't really hear from, from someone? Maybe you've been on the other end of it. Maybe you've been one who can't be heard, where you know no matter what I say right now, this person's not going to hear me. I know it, and there's nothing I can say. You know, I, this is it. I might as well not say a word because they are not going to hear me. You know, have you, maybe it's been in a place where your heart is even completely right. Have you ever been in that spot where you really care for the person? You want what's best for them. You love them. All you want to do is help. But you know that right now there is no way that you can be the one to help because they can't hear you. I know many parents who have felt that with children. You know? Sometimes we're on, we're on the other end of it where we're in a submissive posture, where we want to help the organization, we want to help the team, we want to help the leader, and yet we're seen as a threat. We're seen as one who is, is taking things in a way that isn't appropriate or something, you know? And we're like, I was just trying to help. Or maybe we're actually the team leader who God's really been helping us say, like, this is what I need to do to help the team out. And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take them here. This is what God's telling me for my family i got to do. And yet the one who's trying to follow, they're not in a place where they can hear. They are not in a place where they can hear. And so no matter what I do, no matter what I say, I know that it is not welcome right now by the ear of the hearer. This story today is a picture of a person who's never been more misjudged, never been more misinterpreted, never been more unwelcome. It's Jesus. And on Palm Sunday, when there's branches waving and people shouting Hosanna, it's the beginning of a whole week that shows us one thing, that Jesus will do what no other hero will do. He'll bring the help, not that we want, but the help that we need. You see, when Jesus comes to his people in this moment, he's so different. He's so uncommon because he sees things purely. He sees them out of love. And he doesn't play the social games about learning what people want and then and doing those things. Instead, he looks deep into the heart and, and, and sees the need, and he goes after it. I mean, every time you see a hero, they're saving people from things they want to be saved from, right? I mean, like, the train is going at you know, mock speed and about to go off the bridge and Superman jumps off on the, onto the tracks and sets himself and stops the train. And, you know, every person in that train wants to be saved. They don't want to die. And so Jesus stops them, or uh, Superman stops them. And he's a complete and total hero because he's giving them exactly what they want. But what about a parent who sees destructive patterns in their child? And they're trying hard to stop their child from those destructive patterns. But the child really likes the destructive patterns and doesn't want to be saved from them. You know? Well, that's a different situation. The heroes in the movies, they always get applauded because they're doing the things that the people like. But most of the hard, heroic work of love is not always in a place where a person wants it, where they're desperately just asking to be you know, saved from these wicked ways that feel so incredibly good, <laughs> you know? And this is where Jesus finds himself. He comes in, and of course he comes in at first. It's, it's amazing, you know, the, the palm branches and, the, and everything going on and the shouting, the wonderful Jesus is here, he's Messiah, and the, the, the cries out. And then you start to see what Jesus is doing. That's what they're all doing. 
but you start to see what Jesus is doing. He has an intention. This is not a crowd that's going to pave the way for him. This is him decidedly walking back into Jerusalem for one week with a mission. And he will not be dissuaded. So he sets his face and he walks up in the morning after the, the, the triumphal entry and he steps out of Bethany where he's hanging out with Mary and Martha and Lazarus and he's staying at their place and he gets up in the morning, I would imagine very early, and he comes walking up and he, he saunters down the Mount of Olives and crosses the Kidron Valley and comes up into the temple area and as he walks up, as he's walking over somewhere on the Mount of Olives probably, he looks over and sees this fig tree. And He's hungry, we're told. And so he sees the fig tree, and it's about this time of year. And the buds are up on the fig trees. This fig tree seems to be actually in leaf already. It's started to bring its leaves already. And so he goes over, and he's hungry, and he's looking for something to eat. And he goes over to see if there's any figs being produced on this tree. And he looks at it, and there's no fig. And what does he do? What does he do? He curses it. How often do you see Jesus using his power to do stuff like that? Not very often. He's usually healing someone, taking an arm that isn't working and stretching it out and making it whole. He's casting out demons. He's, He's doing all the positive things. This starts a week where everything is going to be different because Jesus recognizes the time is short and he's done everything he can to lay the groundwork of being kind and compassionate and laying all the groundwork of building the bridge between him and his people. But time is short and he must come to the rescue. He looks at the fig tree and he curses it. And we look at it and we say, wait a minute, Jesus is supposed to be the life giver. He's the creator. He's the one who who cares. He's the one who does nice things. You know, he's not that Old Testament God of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is Jesus. You know, this is, who is this? Why did he just do this? And he continues to walk past the fig tree and he walks into the temple into the outer court of the temple otherwise known as anyone know the other name for that the gentile court this is the gentile court so in the, in the outside of the temple area there's this place where the gentiles are allowed to come and pray so in the, in the middle is the holy of holies where there's the mercy seat and the shekinah glory and the blue flame and god connects with his people at the ark of the covenant outside of that is the holy place where the priests are where they can come and bring their incense and and pray to god and outside of that is where the jewish men could gather to pray and outside of that is this gentile court where the gentiles could come and they could pray and jesus comes walking through the gentile court which is just the very perimeter of the temple and as he comes walking in he sees that there are people selling stuff all over the place there's these money changers they're selling doves there's all this commotion going on and what is this place for what's the purpose of this place again Prayer. For who? For all nations. This is the Gentile court. All nations are to come here and pray. When God called Abraham, he said, I will make out of you a nation, and you will be a blessing for all people. 
They were blessed in order to be a blessing. The whole point of God forming a covenant with Israel was not just so they could be a special people, but that out of them would spill over the love of God for all the nations around them. And so the temple was structured to show exactly this, that as they connect with the living God, and as they offer their sacrifices, and as they draw close to God, that they're spillover all over the cup, and that the outside of the temple was the Gentile court, where these Gentiles who were lost and pegged, can come and gather around the outside of the temple and fall to their knees and look for the scraps off the table of the living God. And when he walks up to this place of prayer for all nations, for the Gentiles, he finds that they're being ripped off by the Jews because the Jews are no longer receiving what they need from God in the holy place. So they turn to the Gentiles who are coming trying to connect with God and they rip them off because they need something that they're not finding deep in the center of the temple. And so instead of prayer overflowing to the outside, they look to the outside and try to grab money on the outside. But you cannot serve both the one in the center and the one on the outside. You cannot rip someone off looking for the money on the outside and still say that this is a house of prayer out here. I can't go and pretend that I have a living relationship with God and yet there's nothing happening out here with those who are supposed to be blessed by my relationship with God. And Jesus walks back out of the temple, and as he walks back out, he's going past the fig tree again. And Peter, of course, says, did you see that? The fig tree, it's withered up, it's shriveled. There's nothing there. And he says, have faith in God. Have faith in God. When we have faith in God, we bear fruit. When we, this, this moment where he says, he quotes and he says, it's said that my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. But you have made it into a den of robbers. You see the whole picture of what he's saying here. This is how a relationship with God works. We go and we get broken and repentant before God. We offer the sacrifice. We get on our knees and we cry out to God and we say, we need you, we need you. And God begins to pour his blessings down on us. And he fills us up with the power of the Holy Spirit. He fills us up with his character, with his love. And he changes who we are in the very pit of our hearts. He writes his law on our hearts and he gives us a new heart. He takes out our heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh. And when he changes us and when he begins to live within us and when we begin to stare at his glory, we're transformed from glory unto glory and spilling out from our lives comes the fruit of the Spirit. And those around us are massively affected by the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the gentleness, the faithfulness, and the self-control that God brings in our lives and spills over to those around but when Jesus walks up to the fig tree, who created that fig tree? He did. Was it the season for that thing to be barren fruit? It says it wasn't the season, but it was the season because its maker was hungry and wanted something to eat. So what should that fig tree have done? Given him fruit. That's its job. And if Jesus, the creator of the fig tree, wants fruit, that fig tree better figure out how to produce fruit. And when he comes walking into his house, his temple, what should they do? Fall on their face and worship him. 
Because in the center, out here, where it says that the Shekinah glory is, where the people come to worship the living God, there's nothing there. But then God himself, God incarnate, comes walking into his own house, completely unrecognized, and all of his children are cheating each other and fighting each other, and nothing good is happening. What does Jesus have to do? He has to clean house, because he has to say, I've just come back to my house, and I have found that it does not reflect my character, and this is not the way things are run in my house and I love you way too much to act like you are not my children and I'm about to clean house. It would be inappropriate for Jesus not to take responsibility in this moment. This is his home. It represents him. Now Jesus, we've said before, checked his divine power at the gate of heaven when he came down to earth and he lived in submission to his father and worked out his power, but he did not stop being the living God. He was fully incarnate, living God. And when he walked into this place, they say that they pray and they they said that they worship God. But when God walked in, he went unrecognized. As you find the story continues to move on throughout the next couple of chapters, this is what happens. First of all, the religious leaders start to question, of course, because they can't hear from Jesus right now. They can't hear from him. He's the other political party. He's the one who's the threat. He's the one who disrupts what it is they're trying to do. Everything about Jesus, they can't hear from him. So this is when they ask him, the the next time that he comes into the temple, the next morning he comes back into the temple, and this is what they say to him. Jesus, who gave you the authority to do this stuff? I mean, honestly, you're throwing the... The table's over. Who do you think you are? You're just some Joe Blow from Nazareth. I mean, obviously you got power and everything, but who is the one who who actually gave you the go-ahead here? I mean, did, did you get a permit to do this? Who put you in charge of this? Where did you get this authority? And so you remember what Jesus says. He says, who gave John the Baptist authority? And they step back and they're like, oh, this is a trap. This is a trap because if we say that John the Baptist had authority from God, then all of a sudden he's going to say, why didn't we submit to him and follow him? And, and if we say that he didn't come from God, we're in big trouble because all these people who are all excited right now, they know that John the Baptist, you know, it was legit and they think he was legit. And so they're stuck. And all Jesus is trying to show them is one thing. It doesn't matter what I say to you right now. You can't hear me. I could tell you where I'm from but you wouldn't hear me. And the whole point of this whole thing is that Jesus deeply loves His children. And He wants so desperately for them to come back into relationship with Him and to begin to bear fruit. But what He's saying is, I can tell by your fruit you don't love me. I can tell when I walk into my own house where supposedly you worship me that you don't recognize me. I can tell then you don't love me. You're asking me where I came from, but I can't even tell you that because if I do, you won't hear me because if I give you another example, you're stuck. You know. And so over and over again, He's trying to tell them this one thing. You can't hear me you can't hear god you can't receive the help that you need because you're so bent on grabbing a hold of the things that you want and you can't serve two masters and so after that what's amazing is is that jesus has this one encounter where well first he tells a parable about you know a guy who's sending his servants out to his vineyard to collect and they keep killing the people who he sends, and then eventually sends his own son, and then they kill his son too. 
the obvious application. It's so obvious that the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they even get it. And they're like, he just told this about us. We're going to kill him. Because they realize that he's talking about them. That's how, they, they, they know it's not even nuanced at this point. They know it's about them, and they still can't hear him, so much so that they want to stop the voice to the point that they'll kill the man just to get his voice to stop because it's so convicting, but they don't want to hear the conviction because they want to continue with their lives as they are. And this man is the disruption. From that, there's one other encounter with a religious leader right after it. The religious leader says, what's the greatest of the commandments? And Jesus says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is like unto it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Beautiful picture. Come into the temple, kneel down, pray, connect with the living God, and it will transform your relationship with your neighbors, your Gentiles. That's what, it's a summary again. You know, this is the whole point of the relationship with God is that we go after him, we get on our knees, we're broken, we're dependent, we pray, he has full access to our lives, he changes us, he transforms us, and it changes our relationships with all of those around us. That's what he says. And the religious leader, to his credit, says, wow, I think you're right, Jesus. (laughs) I mean, I kind of find it funny that, like, he was giving affirmation to Jesus about what was right, you know? But still, Jesus was like, that's good, you're not far from the kingdom. You're not far from the kingdom. He didn't say you're in. He said you're not far. You know what the difference is? It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to do it. It's one thing to know the right answer. It's another thing to trust the right person. You see, this guy had the right theology. The Jews, they had the right spot, the temple. Those who who praised Jesus and and had the, the palm branches, they had the right attitude for a minute. They had the right addiction. But within a week, they switch addictions. The fad changed. They all have the right something. And then they try to add Jesus on top of it and try to get it to make sense. But this is what Jesus came to tell them. Anything at all, theology, goodness, righteousness, wealth, power, position, religion, anything at all, plus me, plus Jesus, equals Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. But Christ plus nothing equals absolutely everything. See, the trickiest part for Jesus wasn't just that they couldn't hear the truth. The trickiest part for Jesus is that the truth is what they needed was Him. It wasn't just that they needed a new theology. It wasn't just that they needed to have a tweak in their religion. It's not just that they needed an adjustment. What they needed was to submit to Him. And it's one thing if you go to a child and you're the parent and you're trying to tell them to change their behavior here and they can't really hear you because they want to do that kind of behavior. It's a whole other thing if what they need to learn is to submit. (laughs) And you're the one they need to submit to. And you're trying to teach them that. Now try to get them to hear that. But the best thing for them is that they submit. Jesus doesn't need them to submit. He doesn't care. It's not like he wants them. He needs the praises. He just knows that their lives were designed by the living God. 
And the only way they will function appropriately is in full surrender and submission to him in brokenness and dependence. And when he looks at the religious system of the day, and when he looks at the wealth of the day, and when he looks at the political powers of the day, and when he looks at the addictions of the day, and when he looks at the thought processes of the day, he realizes that all over the place, those are the very things that are keeping people from receiving him. And his job is ruthless and relentless pursuit of helping them to see this one thing, one simple thing. You need something, and it's me. But you can't hear me right now, can you? And so what does he do? He, does, he could do all the things they want. I mean, he could do a song and a dance, and he could overthrow the Romans with a flip of his hand, and he could do all the things they want and win their allegiance. And as soon as he stopped doing the things they want, they wouldn't care anymore, and they wouldn't like him. And that's why what he does in this moment is not to give them what they want, but to give them what they need. He walks right into their temple, their sacred place, and he takes their altars, and he throws them on the ground, and he says, if you care about this stuff more than you care about me, then you've missed the point. And so he doesn't come in kind anymore like he has for the last three years. He comes in rough because he needs them to know that if they only like him because he's healing their bodies when they hurt, then they're not actually after him, they're after the healing. If they only like him because he's going to overthrow the Romans, then what they want is independence, when what they actually need is dependence on him. And so Jesus comes in, not the kind, nice Jesus we've seen for three years, but the dedicated father who wants desperately for his kids to do well, and they're in need of a wake-up call. And so he comes in with a heavy hand, and he begins to show that he's in charge, and this is his house. And unless you learn to submit to the living God, all else is useless, because anything at all plus Christ equals nothing. But nothing at all plus Christ equals absolutely everything. And it's Desperately, what he wants us to know is that if we submit to him and give our lives to him, that we will find ourselves in a position of absolute beauty, of absolute hope, of fruitfulness that will change the relationship that we have with all the people around us. But when they can't hear him, he sets his jaw like a good parent. And he says, I will not relent. I will win this battle. I am the Father. And if it's over my dead body, you will learn to love me. And so it will. Let's pray.